Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the international edition of the Art of Drug Choice, Vet AMD and the latest data. I'm your host, Arshad Kanani, and it's my great pleasure to have esteemed international uh, faculty here today with me, Dr. Peter Kurtz from University of Toronto, Canada. Hi, Peter. Hi, Arshan. Thank you. We also have Justice Garvik from University of Bern, Switzerland. Hi, Arshad. And we have Dr. Sinu Hari Prasad from University of Chicago. Thank you so much, Arshad. It's a pleasure to be involved in this. This is episode one of four. Today, we'll discuss tactics for switching wet AMD patients to different drugs and also review a case with Dr. Garweg. In future episodes, we'll discuss phase three data, real world data, pipeline candidates, and we'll wrap up the series with a discussion on safety. For now, let's get into a review of therapeutic options for wet AMD. Peter, now that there, there is another anti-VEGF option to select, which is bolucizumab, have you found that you are more willing to switch your wet AMD patients to a different anti-VEGF agent? You know, that's, um, that's an interesting uh, question. You know, uh, unfortunately, much of what we do is driven by reimbursement. So in Toronto, which is in the province of Ontario, where I practice, um, so far, brolicizumab hasn't been reimbursed. So it's been, uh, it's been relatively difficult and slow to switch uh, patients from their current therapy, which is by and large a flibercep to, uh, to brolicizumab. But certainly I have many patients who are on frequent, who need frequent dosing of their flibercep um, that I have switched to brolicizumab. Um, and many more that um, I'm eager to give brolicizumab a try and to see if I can extend those patients a little longer and uh, stretch out their visits. But of course, I'm always uh, I'm always a bit cautious given the in inflammation data that we're seeing with brolicizumab. Thanks, Peter. Those are great points. And it's so nice to have all of you here because we can get different perspective today. And, you know, brolicizumab has been available in the U.S. Uh, since... Uh, October of 2019. And of course, we're going to deal with safety in our last episode. Uh, Justice, you have been uh, an early adapter in Switzerland. You presented some impressive cases and taught all of us uh, about managing these patients. Uh, so tell me how you are treating your patients currently with VAD-AMD and when do you decide to switch to bolacizumab? Basically, we have not changed our attitude. We are unhappy if the retina is not stable. And namely, if you see a patient with a better or an only eye, you want to have the patient dry. So you have a patient on a drug which is not working or the patient has a very high treatment demand, then you would consider switching to another drug. And then you uh, take all opportunities you have. If you have the patient on, on Lucentis, you would switch probably in the current situation to, to uh, aflibercept and uh, from aflibercept to brolicizumab. But if you have a patient with a history of having had everything, uh, you go right away into new treatment options where you have a chance to stabilize the situation, namely in a patient who is uh, expecting quite a way to go uh, until uh, coming down with this vision. Thanks, uh, Justice. It sounds like the, the goal is disease control uh, based on OCT, and all of us are trying to uh, make sure that the retina is as dry as possible while we are decreasing the treatment burden um, on patients uh, with wet AMD. So Sinu, I know you have been involved with all the clinical trials and presented 
data for you know all of them and you have a very busy practice at University of Chicago. So when you have a patient uh, uh, with wet AMD and they're coming in monthly and they have uncontrolled disease and their vision is uh, sliding, um, what do you do for that patient uh, currently? I think this past uh, year and a half, um, more than ever in history has made us reevaluate uh, how we're treating patients uh, with the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, that there were times during the past year, I didn't know when the next follow-up would be for these patients. And so every patient that comes in on uh, older generation therapies, we do an evaluation um, about um, you know, wh whether we should switch the patient or continue what we're doing. And uh, for each patient, it's simply a balance between this ultra rare uh, adverse event um, a profile of brolicizumab, um, catastrophic inflammation that leads to vision loss versus the, um, you know, the, the, there's minimal controversy that brolicizumab has a very strong drying effect uh, of the retina. And so um, that this balance is something that we think about in each and every patient. And uh, we do switch um, if uh, patients had multiple ILEA, Avastin injections, and they just have persistent fluid, God forbid the vision is getting worse, or even if the uh, frequency of visits are too high, uh, we, we absolutely will switch. And, um, and uh, of course, there's a very um, a good discussion with the patient and informed consent. And uh, we will switch to brolicizumab if um, it's a sensible thing to do in that uh, particular patient. I think those are really good uh, points, uh, Sino. I think with COVID-19, we have all seen how patients uh, miss their visits and then their vision ended up poor, whether there was a bleed or poor disease, disease control. Uh, so, so Peter, um, how did COVID impact uh, your practice in in Canada, and and what 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 are the things you did to kind of help your patients with WebMD? For me, it was we did uh, operate, we just uh, did injection only visits, and really, uh, you know, got the patients in and out. But we really didn't stop. But there were patients who didn't want to come in, and then when they kind of came three months later with a bleed, we had irreversible vision loss. So. As Sinu mentioned, I think we learned that we need agents that have better durability and, and better drying effect to control the disease. What, what did you do in uh, Canada uh, during COVID? Yeah, I, I had a very similar experience. I mean, we had um, you know periods of time where we were shut down really to all elective stuff, but people, our AMD patients who needed active ongoing therapy would still come in. So uh, we worked pretty hard to get them in and out as quickly as possible. Um, you know, uh, many patients that had sort of an established interval of stability that was reasonable in length, you know, we would just sort of, uh, we would get them in, take a quick look and do the injection and get them out and forego some of the diagnostic testing that we were accustomed to. Um, you know, there are patients that sort of extended themselves. So, you know, you raised a good point where patients were afraid to come in and reluctant to come in. And many of those patients did come back with catastrophic and irreversible vision loss, but many of those patients uh, came in, you know, after a long interval, fairly stable. So um, they sort of, uh, they, they showed us that um, their interval that had been set previously maybe wasn't aggressive enough and they could go longer. So we certainly saw both sides of the coin. It was uh, unfortunately to see those patients that had lost vision, but um, there are many patients um, who had established a longer interval that um, have continued on that longer interval. Peter, those are, those are great points. And I agree with you. I think I've had some patients who are getting treatment every six to eight weeks, and then 
they they missed a few appointments and came four months later and they're they have minimal fluid so i think it tells us that it's, it's a very individualized disease and the treatments need to be individualized to cater to the patients and and of course peter you have done excellent work on that and published that um, so justice uh, has uh the, the vaccination rates have gone up, at least in the U.S. Uh, how about Switzerland? How are things in Switzerland? And has that impacted, uh, you know, um, your practice, meaning you have more and more patients coming in uh, to get their treatments? That's interesting. In, in Switzerland now, it's 57% uh, of individuals having been uh, vaccinated twice. So there's quite, uh, quite some safety. But our patients, namely the elder patients, they lost their fears. They, they uh, learned how important it is to, to work together. They were more reluctant to go to their GPs and family do doctors than coming to us because they learned uh, they need the treatment. And this did not change uh, with the uh, progress in vaccination. Basically, patients uh, do fear more in Switzerland to, to lose vision, to go blind, or to lose their driving licenses then uh, uh, get uh, attracting uh, COVID. So it didn't make such impact in the early three months, yes, but not thereafter. Yeah, I think that sounds like the similar um, experience here in the US. Uh, so, you know, how, how has your practice changed after COVID? So, so, you know, before COVID, we were doing certain things. COVID taught us that we need better durable agents and a lot of patients need their treatments and, and some of them can be extended. So. Any learnings for the audience from COVID, especially as you know, the leader at University of Chicago and, and, and doing training for a lot of residents and fellows and taking care of all the patients there? You know, it's, it's really funny. Um, uh, we, we learned a lot uh, from the COVID experience. Um, you know, what we've been through psychologically, mentally, ourselves, our patients. Uh, it really was a remarkable year. It was a horrible year. I wish it never happened. Uh, but um, you can't go through this without uh, learning something. And, um, you know, it, it's really amazing how few patients, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 did very poorly. That there were a handful. There's no doubt about it. But there were many patients who actually did okay with um, increased frequency of injections. And, and so we had a discussion, myself and my trainees, that are we overdosing? Are we overtreating uh, the, these patients? And we came up with the conclusion that it is okay to overtreat to prevent a small portion of patients, um, um, you know, falling through the cracks and having catastrophic vision loss. And I think that's um, it was very educational to us to see what happens without the frequency of dosing that we're accustomed to. And uh, I, I do believe, as a community, we are overdosing a little bit, but you know what? That's okay. And, um, um, you know, because it's good to bring in these patients, it's good to look at the fellow eye, make sure the fellow eye didn't convert, um, um, you know, and the treat and extend strategies are excellent. But I think that's one thing that we learned. The other thing that we learned is not to be scared by ultra, ultra rare catastrophic inflammatory events. And um, Brolosumab saved us. And, you know, as an institution, we don't have the ability to flex the way you all do in private practice. And um, it's very different. I mean, we had to follow the institutional guidelines and our uh, volumes were slashed in terms of patient volumes. So, um, uh, you know, we, we were, we're in survival mode and uh, we, we use a lot of durable agents, uh, whether it's Ozodex, Illuvian, Brolicizumab. Uh, we really leaned on uh, these agents to get us through these uh, difficult times when 
that there were some days, you know, I typically see 65, 70 patients a day. We were seeing six or seven patients a day. Can you imagine the catastrophic cut in the volume? So, um, so really, it, um, uh, we, we leaned on these more durable agents, and um, God willing, uh, we didn't see anything uh, uh, bad happen. And um, uh, but, but it, it gave us the muster that uh, it's okay to use some of these agents. And and frankly, brolicizumab is not the only agent uh, in the pipeline that has uh, uh, you know an, an adverse event profile that we need to think about. So there's a whole generation of drugs in the pipeline that are not perfect uh, from an adverse event profile. And frankly, the community has to learn how to um, deal with this and how fortunate we are to have such safe drugs that were approved early on in the treatment uh, of these diseases, um, uh, you know, from uh, 2004 or five onward. Sina, those are excellent points. And I agree, you know, we realized that some people, uh, patients were overtreated that they could go longer. But on the flip side, obviously, we know that in the real world, patients just don't come in for injections. And I think your take on the community learning about risk and benefit of each agent is crucial, right? I think we have to balance risk and benefit of anything we use. And we are lucky to have uh, safe drugs uh, with a comparable safety profile in, in uh, ranubizumab and a flibercept. So thanks again uh, for a great discussion uh, here. Um, for the audience, we are taking a short break now and we'll be back with a case in a minute. Uh, please don't go anywhere. Hello everyone, uh, welcome back uh, from the break. Now in this portion, we are excited to have Dr. Justice Garveg present a case for us. Thanks, Arshad. I'm presenting a very long-standing case, a 78 years old, healthy, uh, and newly diagnosed uh, patient with neovascular AMD and advanced cataract, as you may see from the pictures below. Visual acuity was very low in his right eye because of fibrovascular scar and uh, was compromised in the left eye due to cataract, but also due to his macular disease, as you can see uh, at the uh, image on the bottom line left. In the next image, you see there's a uh, staining of the scar in the fluorescent angiography of the right eye, and there's some leakage, uh, though there's a low contrast due to the con uh, minimized contrast due to cataract in uh, the left eye. You see the OCT images, you see the severely destructive macula on the right uh, eye and uh, some fluid detectable subretinally and subpigment epithelially in his left eye. So this patient received monthly or almost monthly injections of ranibizumab from 2007 on. And uh, he was not stable as, as you can see in his left eye, which is stayed after cataract surgery. So the, the uh, contrast uh, and the signal noise is much better uh, than prior to that cataract surgery, but vision has not improved very much. It was maintained at uh, 2032, whereas reading vision went down despite uh, visual uh, monthly injections. So in, at this point, after three and a half years of monthly injection, we decided to inject additionally intravitreal corticosteroids because aflibacet was not on the market. We learned that this uh, did not add to the benefit of this eye, and we went on with monthly injection. Here you can see the situation prior to uh, switching to aflibacet, which is uh, another two years later, or one and a half years, 
severe pigment epithelial alteration in his only left eye, a visual acuity which is still reasonable with 2040, but complete loss of reading vision even with magnifying glasses. At this point, uh, aflibercept was marketed and we decided to switch to aflibercept with a significant intraretinal fluid. And you see already after the, the first aflibercept injection, fluid completely uh, resolved and the patient was absolutely dry. Visual acuity did not improve that much. And this is experience with switching. Normally, if you switch a patient, you aim not at improving vision, you aim at uh, achieving long-term stability, which was the case here. But this patient came back and said it's a miracle because he was back to reading with magnifying glasses and was very happy with that. After further two monthly injections in terms of a loading phase, uh, the patient was put on six weekly intervals. And obviously the six week intervals were his uh, individual limit of extension, as you can see with the recurrent intraretinal fluid uh, temporarily to the fovea. His visual acuity has remained stable over several years. And then you see what happened after 12 years, uh, after uh, switching to aflibercept, the macula was completely dry and we main, managed to keep it dry with or plus minus dry with six weekly intervals. But at the end, visual acuity dropped to uh, 2060 and reading vision was lost. lost and this is uh, basically due to macular atrophy, which could be a long with the underlying disease and namely with the fibrovascular scar under the retina, but also uh, with the treatment uh, intensity needed here. That has to be discussed. So at this point, uh, I have to say the patient was very happy with switching. And maybe if we were able to switch him today to Brodelsisma, we would come further uh, with extending the intervals, but we would not escape the problem of biological aging. Recall the patient was 78 years when he made his diagnosis and he's meanwhile 92 years old and still uh, requiring treatment to maintain some uh, uh, spatial vision. Thanks, Justice. Uh, that was an excellent case. Really highlights that AMD, neovascular AMD is a lifetime disease in most patients. And you can see how you control the disease so well, but the atrophy process obviously was affecting um, the patient. So Sinu, uh, question. Uh, for you, looking at the case Justice presented, I mean, it's an essentially a patient who has one good eye and they were switched to a flibercept. Um, what are your uh, take on switching a patient that only has one good eye to, uh, let's say, brolocizumab um, based on the data we have currently? I, I loved uh, Dr. Garwick's case. Uh, it, there's so many uh, points uh, to discuss in this case, a lot of learning points. Uh, well, one thing I took away from the case is the importance of having more than one therapy in your toolbox. Um, you know, he tried corticosteroids and, um, you know, switched um, to a flibercet and he did all sorts of things for the uh, well-being of the patient. And uh, this is what we do in our daily practice. It's all a risk-benefit ratio and we have to decide um, is doing 30 anti-VEGF injections of, uh, you know, whatever it is of your choice and uh, not drying the fluid is that uh, less harm than um, um, you know, some uh, ultra rare adverse event uh, from a drug? And, and this is where the art of retina comes into play and uh, hence the uh, title of this whole discussion is that th there's an art here that takes a lot of clinical practice and discussion with our colleagues and understanding clinical trial data and translating the clinical trial data into our daily practice for the benefit of our patients. 
But the point that I took from this case is the importance of having multiple tools in our toolbox. And not all therapies are perfect, and a lot of pipeline therapies are not going to be perfect, but that's our job. That's what we do as retina specialists is to balance the risk-benefit profile in any given patient. So whether it's a patient with one eye or a patient with both eyes being treated and the uh, treatment burden is too high um, or, or the frequency of visits are too high, this is what we do is we tailor the therapies to benefit our patients or the, to individualize uh, the therapies in our patients. Those are excellent points, uh, Sinu, and we are lucky to have multiple options in our toolbox, as you said. Peter, uh, any thoughts on the case, uh, the beautiful case justice presented? And also, what is your experience with intravitreal corticosteroids in, in desperate cases of insufficiently controlled neovascular AMD? I must say, Arshad, that um, you know, in the early days of anti-VEGF therapy, um, I had considered and on a number of occasions added corticosteroids, but I, to be honest, I, did, I never found them uh, too useful. That was sort of, I think, a left leftover from the days of photodynamic therapy, photodynamic therapy, where we found that intravitreal trimcinolone um, had some utility. But I think, um, I think in the anti-VEGF era, I think their utility is relatively limited. I mean, this is a great uh, case uh, that Eustace presented. I, I must say, I admire not just his perseverance, but the perseverance of the patient. You know, looking at those OCTs, it's surprising how good his vision was. I have, um, I have patients like this as well, whose vision with OCTs, you know, very, that look very similar to that is quite poor. And in situations like that, it's a lot harder, I think, to keep the patient motivated, keep the patient coming back. I mean, I do believe, and I think there's, uh, good evidence to suggest that ongoing uh, with treatment is is useful and um, worthwhile, but um, sometimes it's hard to motivate a patient with poor vision um, who has whose vision has deteriorated slowly um, over time. You know, after 12 years of therapy, I, I must say, with virtually monthly injections on a number of different agents, uh, there aren't that many patients that whose OCT looks like that that see 2060. I mean, it, if it weren't for the, re, the obvious response that you demonstrated with, uh, with switching therapy, you know, I would have thought that some of those cysts that we see are, are degenerative and, and don't necessarily represent disease activity. But the fact that they go away with, uh, with, switch, with switching therapy suggests that there's obviously ongoing disease activity. Those are great points, uh, Peter. I think uh, the treatment burden issue is real. Even in patients with good visual acuity, sometimes they just get the injection fatigue, as we call it. And, uh, and I think it takes a great uh, physician to motivate the patient. So, so congrats, Justice, you did a great job. If I'm having neovascular AMD, I'm coming to you for treatment. And I wouldn't mind living in Switzerland also. Thank you. So, so one last question for, for you, Justice, followed by Sinu and Peter is, there's a lot of discussion about contribution of anti-VEGF therapy to development of macular atrophy. So I think for the audience, uh, uh, tell me what are, what are your considerations or thoughts on, do anti-VEGF agents really cause atrophy or we are treating neovascular AMD while the dry AMD is progressing and causing atrophy? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that was one of the reasons to choose that case because it, because it gives us very much insight uh, into what is going on. Recall that this case had more than 100 injections in 12 years. Uh, this is the, the ideal, ideal case to test the hypothesis of atrophy linked to treatment. 
if there were a case, uh, if there were a correlation between uh, treatment density and atrophy, then he would definitely have developed atrophy at a much earlier stage. And uh, you must not forget uh, that, that uh, the biological grounds for developing uh, AMD, be it life or uh, uh, neovascular, is age. And this case dropped in at, at an age of 72 years. He's 92, uh, 78 years. He's 92 years by now. And that means his biological grounds have significantly worsened. So that's really important. I think that's a really good point, Justice. I think the point is that if all of us live long, long enough, we may all end up with uh, atrophy. Uh, Sinu, what are your thoughts on uh, anti-VEGF in association with uh, macular atrophy? Um, uh, look, it's a, uh, first of all, I uh, agree with everything Dr. Garwig um, uh, mentioned, and it's a very fun academic debate. It's been going on for uh, over a decade, and it's a very fun debate to have. But the truth of the matter is, number one, there's conflicting data, and number two, that, um, you know, wh what are you going to do? Not treat a patient with wet AMD out of this concern? And so uh, for me, um, I, I don't think uh, the anti-VEGFs are causing geographic atrophy. I, I think that um, uh, we have an underlying disease called dry AMD that's uh, left untreated and that's progressing with time. And um, we do a great job keeping the wet AMD component con under control. So that, that's all I think it is. It's a passage of time. And even in the CAT study, I think it was an artifact and uh, it's probably outside the scope of um, this um, 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 uh, course uh, to talk about why that is, but I, I think it was an artifact that we saw in the data. So uh, in my opinion, it's a fun academic uh, discussion. Uh, it doesn't change the way I manage. I don't under treat for the concern of geographic atrophy. And uh, I think uh, we still have to continue to treat the wet component of the disease, uh, regardless of whether this is a true phenomenon or not. Maybe I may add to that, that if you look from a patient perspective, patients don't care about an atrophy in 10 years. Uh, and uh, the thing is, if they develop atrophy due to uncontrolled neovascular activity, they will lose their vision within several months. Whereas if you treat uh, successfully, they will have a time of years or even decades to develop that atrophy. And uh, this means they have a chance uh, to develop uh, uh, compensatory uh, mechanisms for their vision loss. So uh, if they get rapidly uh, rid of their vision, they will be helpless. If they slowly lose vision, they adapt to that situation and still maintain their independence. And this is very important in my feeling uh, and what I get back from my patient in that situation. I think those are both excellent points, Sinu and Justice. I think what you're saying is that uh, of patients suffering from neovascular AMD, if you don't treat, they will uh, lose their vision very fast. And if you don't control the disease, they're going to lose their vision versus worrying about atrophy, which may come down the road. And, you know, we have all had patients, depending on the lesion type, they may not uh, have atrophy down the road. So I think, I think the point is that we need to treat the VET component. And we are lucky we have many agents that are in clinical trials, in late stage clinical trials for for, for dry AMD and geographic atrophy. And we hope that we have those agents approved so we can slow down the process of atrophy while controlling um, wet AMD. This is a wrap up of uh, this episode, uh, but for the audience, we have more episodes that are forthcoming. And the next episode will review phase three data and real world data with wet AMD treatments. Also, please check out the images from the cases on itube.net. 
Thanks again for listening.